Hello, hello. Welcome to the first ever interview that I recorded way back in cold February. I was sitting in my kitchen with the dog with no heating. Remember how cold it was um, in a jumper, a thick coat and a beanie with a very sore throat, which I'm afraid you'll hear in the podcast. I do sound harsh, um, but I just didn't want to miss out on the chance to chat to the brilliant Richard Gerver. Apologies in advance for the sound quality, but please bear with me. It is worth it. In my first couple of interviews, I was getting used to all the tech and I am there now. Um, I hope you enjoy this one as much as I enjoyed talking to Richard. Enjoy. very excited to be interviewing the brilliant Richard Gerber this morning. Uh, when I thought about who I wanted to talk to on here, Richard's was one of the first names that sprang into my head. His journey epitomises all the things this podcast is about. Having a dream and making it happen, thinking outside the box, taking risks, making what he imagined a reality. Richard started out with dreams of becoming an actor. Then he became a teacher, a head teacher, where he completely turned a failing school around and made it into an outstanding, incredibly exciting place to learn. Following that, he became an author, a best-selling one at that, and is now a professional speaker and regarded as one of the world's leading thinkers on leadership and transforming organizations. He's rubbed shoulders with the likes of Barack Obama, and I am very proud to have known Richard for 20 years when he hired me to work in the school where he'd become head and we've just stayed friends ever since. So welcome, Richard. Thank you, Holt. And thanks for reading out mum's email about me. That's very kind. <laughs> <laughs> so, Richard, I remember back in the day, back in the day, when we worked together, coming into your office with some off-the-wall idea and knowing that you would take it seriously and that you would empower me to make it happen. And you've always done that. Where does that come from? Oh, gosh. I, I don't know. I think, I've, I think I've always had what some people might describe as an infantile way of seeing the world. Um, you know, I... I remember when I started at Grange and looking back on it now, realising I had, I think, two important qualities that led to those kinds of conversations and moments, which were arrogant ignorance in equal measure. Um, I absolutely believed that my view of the world was right and I was ignorant, ignorant enough not to know what would happen if it all went, um, you know, smoke. Um, but also... I always, I always have just believed in the art of possibility. I just, I just think that too often we, we kind of pre-censure our ideas and we come up with something and we go, oh, we can't because. And then we put a whole load of reasons in front as why we perceive things can't happen. And I think the real joy of innovation, of creativity, of evolution, of progress, whatever you want to label it, call it actually lies in just having the courage and confidence to say well let's give it a go the worst that can happen is our preconceived ideas will prove to be right see the and best I, that could happen is that this yeah. could go anywhere 
I think that's what you gave us all permission to do as well. You you gave us the ability and the permission to think, I've got an idea and it could happen. Even though I'm in a school environment, Richard believes in me. And you you just gave us that that permission to think, just go for it. Why not? Yeah. And, you know, that's that's I mean, I think if I had um, but working with you all, by the way, truly probably the most special seven years of my life. Um, and even now, I remember at the time saying to what our colleague, Len, you know, th this this is a unique snapshot in time. This won't last forever, um, but it's something we should all just drink in and, and yeah. hold on to. Um, and it was unique, right? One of the things that I think was really important to remember was we were in an organization, in a school, that kind of had nothing to lose. Mm. Everybody had written it off. So, you know, the, the ability to innovate and take risks was actually far easier because the worst that would happen is everyone outside would go, well, we told you so, it's a basket case. Um, and actually it's much easier to be brave and courageous when you're in an organization or a school, which is, it has got one way it, it can go. Um, but also I was surrounded by people like you. And, and maybe that was by accident and design. You know, we had a team of people who all shared an absolute belief that we could just do stuff. We could try stuff. We had loads of creative energy on our team. But we also had, and I think this was really important too, um, we had a group of people who were kind of um, constructively cynical. And I think actually that unique mix is is what gave us our very special ingredient. You know, talk about the, the aforementioned Les and, and John and Pam and some of the, the amazing people we worked with. Right. We had this energy and creativity and can do attitude and why not? And it doesn't matter that it's never been done before. But we also had constructive cynicism, which actually helped us turn flights of fancy into tangible ideas and things that were workable and replicable. And I think all those things together created that unique moment for everybody. Yeah. So how did you get from um, being head teacher and in the role that you were in and, and you achieved everything that you wanted to achieve with Grange to thinking, I know that I can do more. I know that I can make an impact on a wider level how did you what was the process how did you get to that point I think if I can I just uh, let me step back first and then answer your question more yeah. directly um yeah. you know a lot of my life I've spent wondering why I'm one of those people that are always happy to jump off the cliff rather than stand on the side going the parachute won't open um and I think a lot of it is to do with context. You know, like many of us, I had a complicated childhood. I had a difficult time domestically in, in some of my upbringing and experiences. And I think one of the things that does for, for some of us who are lucky enough to come through it in a positive way is it contextualizes the whole idea of risk and chance. Um, to an extent, you can always calibrate what you're living in and through by the experiences you've had in the past. And somehow for me, it was always, well, 
no, I've, I've come through more challenging circumstances. It will be okay. And I think for a lot of people, it's sometimes just that almost subconscious thing of, I know this looks crazy, but I know actually subconsciously I have a kind of belief it'll work out. I have a self-belief. I think it'll be all right. It'll come out the way it was planned. It might not go down a neat trajectory, but somehow it'll work out. And so when you fast forward to, to Grange, I mean, so many of those moments in my professional life were kind of accidental, driven by instinct. You know, applying for the job at Grange, was it wasn't a plan. It was just one of those things that was instinctive and it worked out amazingly. Um, and what started to happen, of course, inevitably at Grange was as we became quite successful, people need to, this was in a kind of pre-social media age. So it was a very different thing. More and more people wanted to understand what our secret was. And the truth was, I didn't. I don't know if any of us knew what our secret was. We were just doing the stuff we were passionate about for the kids we really, really cared about in a community that mattered to us. I think anyway. that was the key, wasn't it? It was that it, everything about what we did was about the children. And it was exactly. about meeting them. You always used to say that you wanted them to be as excited about coming to school as going to Disneyland. And I actually think they were. They loved it. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and that made us love it and spurred us on. Exactly. And, you know, that was the whole thing, right? It was creating an environment where everybody just wanted to be. Um, and, and, you know, that thing about on a cold February morning, getting the kids wanting to come into rather than stay at home thinking I've got a cold, I'll give it a miss today, all of that stuff. And I kind of knew that that if we could create that vibe, then yeah, the kids love it. They'd be proud of their school, that the staff would love it. They'd be proud of their school. And that doesn't negate the tough days and the difficult moments. But what it meant was we all existing in a space we couldn't imagine not wanting to be in. And, and that was huge for, for me in, in all of that. And it's why, actually, it was, it was much harder, I think, than some people thought for me to make the decision to leave than it, it really was, because it was the perfect job. I was living my dream hole. And, and to be selfish about it, I it was everything I ever, ever wanted. Um but, you know, inevitably things started to happen. The school started in a profile. I started to meet really interesting people who were saying to me, you know, you've got really important things to do and say outside of this school. And I think I got to a point where I knew my time was was kind of there was a balance because my time was being pulled by then so much to other things and going to talk with other people and I actually thought you know I've got to a point where I'm going to have to make a choice here because I'm not giving my best to the school anymore um, and I'm not sure I'm giving my best to all these other I'm kind of and Lynn my wife was like Rich you're working seven days a week and you've got kids and we never see you and you're going to have to choose and my mentor Ken Robinson said the same thing he said but he was it's time to go. It's time to come out into the bigger world and, and experience new stuff. How um, did you meet Ken? Sir Ken Robinson, oh, you became so, such good friends, didn't you? Yeah, he was an amazing, amazing man. I mean, I it was, again, one of those happy accidents. Hole. I, I I was asked to go and do a workshop at a head teachers conference to talk about what we were in the process of doing. And Ken was hired to 
keynote speaker. And it was before Ted. So it was before Ken became this global mega phenomenon. Only just, but it was. Um, but I knew of him. He was well known in the sector. He'd written all our futures. He was like the guru of, of the kind of creativity standard bearer, both in education and actually in other sectors as well. Um, so I'd never heard him speak. I didn't know what to expect. Again, there was no YouTube. There was no social media. And I remember setting up my little workshop, going into the main room and listening to this man speak. And it was like he was validating and making sense of everything we'd passionately been working on. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was a, it was it was almost an epiphany. And I just remember being blown away and also deeply intimidated because I had to go and run my workshop. And you think, how the heck do you follow that? Went away, did my um, set up my workshop. There were a drab of people, maybe a dozen people came in. And just as I was about to start, Ken walked in and he said, look, uh, I'm here all day. I've looked down the list. This looks really interesting. Can I come and sit in? Which made it even worse, if I'm honest. <laughs> so he came and sat <laughs> at the back of the room. And and I did the workshop and talked about what we we're doing. And remember, you know, I didn't actually feel we were doing anything remarkable. I just thought we were doing what was right, you know, for yeah. kid. Anyway, everybody thanked me. They left the room and he didn't move. And I thought, oh, my God, what have I said? You know, the, it's about instant impressions. Have I completely what have I done? Anyway, he waited for everyone to leave. He came over to me and he hugged me and he said, oh. you know, that was remarkable. That's the first time I've ever heard a practitioner talk about the things I've believed in, in a really tangible way. Can I get you dinner? And that's how our friendship started. Um, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And he, you know, he became a, he became almost like my professional dad. He was a hugely important sounding board in the kind of later developments at Grange. He'd be one of the first people I'd email or phone and say, what do you reckon? And he'd challenge me and he'd push me. You know, people, I think it's really important for people to know, dwell on this, that having a mentor is not about just having a cheerleader. It's about having somebody who's actually got the courage and love to pop a critical friend. I mean, I, I told this story. I remember when I wrote my first book, which was kind of about Grange and the philosophy yeah. and how we did it. Um, and I remember him reading the first draft because he'd said to me, you need to write a book about this. Um, and I remember him reading the first draft because he'd very kindly, very generously said, look, to, to help sell it, I'll write the forward. Um, and he read the first draft and I hadn't heard from him from a what for a while. And he phoned me and, and I was just about to go and do a speech, actually. And he said, look, I do need to talk to you about this, Rich. The, the draft isn't good enough and I can't put my name to this in its current form. And I remember getting off the phone a bit shell and cussing and who does he think he is? And my ego went into overdrive. And then... Um, I've obviously realized and rationalized and phoned back a day or so later because I realized he, what he'd done was incredibly loving, actually. Mm -hmm. And he said, Look, I'll help. I'll, it, the basis is great. You just need to understand how to write it correctly. And he helped. And, and so, you know, I, I suppose my point is that that act of love and trust that I had for him and I hope was mutual was born out of actual honesty and and that sometimes you need those people around you to help you refine and challenge in the way that I was talking before 
about some of our, you know, constructive skeptics at Grange would yeah. do. Um, and I think when you're really looking to create that flight of fantasy, that innovation and, and create a reality for that journey, having those people around you, my God, is so vital. Mm. So you mentioned earlier that um, when um, you did your workshop and Ken came in and you had this kind of feeling of imposter syndrome, I'm just curious to know all these years on and all the things that you've done and all the people you've met and the people you've stood in front of, do you still get imposter syndrome? Absolutely. Absolutely, I do. All the time. Um, all these years on, I still think, will today be the day when somebody goes, seriously, is that all you've got to say? Um, and when I, I kind of rationalise it now, I, I've got a much, this sounds really poncy, I have a much healthier relationship with imposter syndrome than I did back then. Because I actually now am of 100% belief that it is so vital. Imposter syndrome is a really vital part of your toolbox in terms of your ability to self-regulate. But more than that, actually, you know, one of the things I say a lot these days is never challenge others if you're not prepared to challenge yourself. If, if you're not prepared to challenge your own thinking, your own beliefs, that, you know, the things you're passionate about, then you don't have the right to, to challenge the beliefs of, of others. And, and I think that, really healthy part of imposter syndrome and it's when you build that constructive relationship it becomes okay you know i i will always look at what i've said or what i've written i'll always look at it in the frame of new relationships of new conversations of the learning that i hope i make I think actually that becomes a really healthy part of innovation and creativity too. Um, I think the danger sometimes is people become so blinkered by their own beliefs, their values, their own methodologies, their own ways of working and seeing the world. And the truth is, I remember one of the meetings I had um, a few years ago was Barry Barish, who was the 2017 Nobel Prize winner for physics. How do you go from being a primary school teacher in Derbyshire to that, honestly? <laughs> anyway, and I remember asking him how he went about um, recruiting the people that went on to be part of his team that won a Nobel Prize. <laughs> I mean, to me, I had this vision that it was like something from the Magnificent Seven movie <laughs> where he just plucked the best gunslinger and, you know, the best horseman. And, and anyway, <laughs> and he said, well, First thing he said, which was a huge relief, was actually a really interesting question, which when you're talking to a Nobel Prize winner, that's all that matters, you know, imposter syndrome. Yeah. Thank God it didn't come across as a stupid question. <laughs> and he said, um, he said, I'll tell you, he said, you know, there were two really important caveats we were looking for in people um, because they're kind of their credentials were fantastic he said we had over three and a half thousand serious applicants and most of those people had at least two doctorates to their name i mean he said but the the the, the first caveat is the one i want to really share with you because i think it speaks to this and is so powerful and also so incredibly poetic he said the explanation was you know when you're innovating when you're creating when you're looking to challenge um, the status quo, which is really what science and research is about. It's interesting, isn't it, as an aside? 
I, I really worry that the whole research informed thing in education is a complete fake, actually, because research isn't about finding evidence to prove you're right. It's about challenging what you know and your practice and trying to find new pathways, which is not kind of how I think it is in education at the minute. Um, yeah. But he said, so I needed three dimensional people. I needed people who um, brought new things, fresh things table i wanted people who had unique experiences who had I, he said people who interested me you know i wanted people that on their cvs had really amazing hobbies so as, as their science they were into dance or music or they were into modern languages or travel or something different um he said because it's only when you surround yourself with that have got different views of the world that you can truly evolve because otherwise you breathe increasingly stale air right if all you do is surround yourself with people who do what you do every day you're just gonna recirculate the same stuff and then he said this he said what i was looking for were people that had the courage to challenge the beauty of the proof now i mean to me that's it right that is that is everything and in a way that's kind of what what imposter syndrome, it, why imposter syndrome can be healthy. It's why having constructive cynics around you can be really healthy. Because actually at the very heart of all of it, strip it back. Do we have the courage to challenge the beauty of the proof? And if you think about what we did at Grange, although it wasn't as eloquently cast as that, or even I think probably has crystallized in my head that is kind of what we had we had the courage to challenge the beauty of the proof mm. well I mean yeah we did and that was that kind of came from you though that was all from you and your drive and your vision and your you know where does that drive come from where where do you think your you know this this kind of belief that it's possible and this drive where does it come from again i think it back to my my childhood i had a remarkable mother um who you know like many of us had lived through the horrors of our family breakup situations around that but she was remarkable and interestingly she'd grown up in a different day and age and she'd wanted to be an actress actually and musician uh, funny story I don't know if I've ever told you this and I've never really got to the bottom of it um my I remember when we went to see there was a film called The Bodyguard on at the cinema go with Whitney Houston and Kevin Costner and yeah. the, the there's the the famous love song I will always love you right which I won't try and sing here because we don't oh. want people turning off <laughs> um frankly and, um, yeah no, we could <laughs> <laughs> you could mute me out later. It'll work out okay. And um, we were in the cinema and we we're watching this film and then the, the song, you know, ah, well, there you go, I'm doing it. Ah, we'll always <laughs> love you, that bit. Um, and my mum turned to me and she said, that's my song. And I said, oh. sorry, what what do you mean? And I'll tell you the story. I hope you've got time for this. I'll tell you the story and then come back yeah. to the question, right? So that's my song. I shushed her because we were in the cinema and it was the big crescendo of the movie. Anyway, we came out. I said, what on earth are you talking about? She said, um, I wrote that song when I was 16 years old. I said, you get, she said, the words weren't mine, but the melody was. I said, what? She, and she told me the story. She said her dad had bought her for her birthday in those, you know, 
way back in, you know, the 50s, uh, late 50s, early 60s. She said, my dad bought me um, a session in a recording studio because he knew she was an amazing pianist, actually, and composed her own tunes. And she said he bought me a record and I recorded that and about three or four other tracks in the studio. And um, they were Northwest London Jewish background. So they kind of knew everybody in entertainment in London. And my grandfather had sent the eight track or whatever it was, or the spool or whatever it was recorded onto, to some music empresario. And mum had never heard, heard anything back, right? And she'd forgotten about it. Um, and um, those years later, she heard this song for the first time. Of course, it was credited to Dolly Parton and it had been recorded by Dolly Parton before Whitney Houston took it. But what's interesting is the melody has always been listed as anonymous. And she swore blind that the music empresario somehow, he died apparently a few weeks after my grandfather sent it to him, found and through a track, we've never been able to prove it, through a track of history, had ended up being recorded and oh, created by, goodness. I know, unbelievable. So anyway, looking back, she was Northwest London, middle-class Jewish background. So for those sorts of, that community at that time, being an actress or a musician was absolutely never going to happen, right? It was a no way. Um, yeah. It was all right as a hobby, but it was all right as a hobby, but that was, that was it. And so my mum grew up all being frustrated you know she became she went down the typical route at that time she was married to a a wealthy middle-class Jewish man and her job was to be a housewife and have babies right which she did but I think when she had my brother and I she was passionate that we should live out lives the way we wanted to and so you know for for the I was educated at a private school, which my grandparents had paid for. They, their dreams, I went to become an accountant or a lawyer or, you know, a, an ology or something. Um, and her view, she knew I was passionate about and writing and art. And, and she went, no, go do what you want. So you can imagine I was 18 years old. All my friends were applying for university, going to Oxford or Cambridge or Durham, somewhere posh. And I said, no, I want to be an actor. Well, her courage at that time as an 18 year to go, no, live your dream. But, you yeah. know, and she, there were conditions. You've got to work, earn a living. So, cause you're going to pay me rent, but you go do that. And I think that whole experience growing up in that environment, growing up mother that had the courage. And I think I've only realized that since I had my own children, the courage to go, no, you, you could do it. I'll support. I'm not going to push you. I think all of it, very long-winded answer, Holly, I'm sorry, but all of that led me to the belief I've carried through my life, that my job was to lift others up, to support them, to give them the confidence, courage, and environment to go and give stuff a go. Mm. Which is why sort of going back to Grange again <laughs> you know how important what a responsibility it is isn't it for educators to um you know for those children to install that belief in themselves and and to kind of just be who they are and to believe that they can do anything so important and more important um, now than ever sorry yeah to absolutely. More now than ever, you know so in terms of 
hurdles that you've had to overcome because it's obviously not been plain sailing and you must have had to make some difficult decisions it was a massive risk to leave um you know a really secure job as a as a head teacher and Mm. what kind of hurdles have you had to overcome have you ever had any moments where you've thought I need to park this what am I doing I just need to get a a, all the time all all the time um and i don't think that ever goes away actually um but i'll come i mean the the quick glib answer is and it it relates something i said before i think you get to a point where you have overcome hurdles before you you build every time you do you build a kind of inner confidence to believe you can overcome it the next time um leaving grange was tough and i remember actually again um it comes back to Lynn, my wife. She was remarkable because Ken had been, it's time to leave, procrastinating. You know, I've got a salary. I've got a mortgage. I've got young kids. I've got a wife who's an unbelievably talented educator herself. And one night coming home and procrastinating to Lynn. And you know a whole, she's a tough North Yorkshire woman. She's built of different yeah. gravy, really. Um, thank God, because... Uh, else I love the combination of you two it just works perfectly doesn't it (laughs) yeah it does and she said to me so I was giving it you know the typical thing where you're sat with your partner and they're almost boring you with the repetition of the same conversation that you've had between you over and over and over again and she turned around to me said look you have spent the last 20 years of your life telling kids to take risks and seize opportunity. And she looked me in the eyes and she said, are you going to be a hypocrite and stick with the safe option? Well, that was the kick up the ass that I needed. Yeah. <laughs> and also what courage from her and belief, you know, to because it was yeah. it was as challenging and scary for her as it had been for me. Um, she must have had complete and utter belief in you, mustn't she? Yeah, I, I think so. Or just the belief that we'd been through stuff together and we through that whatever the you know whatever the the thing but yeah I mean I there are frequently moments I mean if you think I left Grange just at the time of the financial crisis so if ever there was a time to be in a safe job that was it um Mm -hmm. so timing's never been my strength (laughs) um but I think that was a really important lesson because I remember that first year or so thinking my god if I survive this if I can make this work through this period, we'll kind of be okay. And then, you know, there have always been moments. I still stress when I look at my diary and it's empty a month or two down the line. Because I one of the things on a professional level you never get used to once you've been in a world where you earn a monthly salary and you pay, you know, PAYE and all that kind of stuff, you never you never lose the fear of not being in that environment, that safety rope, right? And and so every month, whatever you work is what you earn. And, yeah. and so, you know, you don't have that safety net. So there have been many, many moments over the 20 years, of course, none more so, and, and you lived through it with the pandemic of that when the world collapsed and shut down. And you're looking at it thinking, how on earth do I earn a living yeah. now? Um, and I suppose, you know, the innovative bit in me clicked in and thought, right, well, let's just solve the problem. And and I think that's always been my mindset, really. And I don't mean to be glib about this. When those obstacles hit, 
I think there are there are probably many ways, but two key ways you can look at it. The first is, oh my God, hunker down, hope it passes. Let's just hope we survive. Or the second, which has always been the one that I've been drawn to, which is, this is really interesting. This is now an opportunity to solve a problem. Whether it's a big problem or a little problem, it was the thing I most about leadership at Grange was actually the moments where I had to find a solution. You had to find us, you know, you had to find your way around um, a problem. And I think for me, that's always been my first instinct. Oh, this is interesting. How do we find, rather than go, oh my God, it's insurmountable. Again, apologies if you've, you'll remember the story I tell about a a guy who is now a friend of mine, Sebastian Foucault, the founder yes. of parkour, right? Very quickly for people. Um, so Seb um, invented leaping round and off and under and over buildings. Um, he's an amazing guy. And I remember him telling me how parkour first came around, you know, young child. He was from an immigrant family from Guadeloupe. And um, they lived in, they found themselves living north of Paris in a, what felt like a prison because it was just, concrete tower blocks he was never allowed out very much because it was a dangerous place his mum was very protective but he said occasionally he was allowed to sit on the step out the building and one day as a young child daydreaming he saw a stream of light come between two of the buildings and it was the first time he'd ever noticed that there was actually a gap he just to him it was a concrete wall um and he went you know he daydreamed about um if he could fly and fly through the gap, what adventure would it take him on? And that's how parkour began, you know, because what he said to me later was, have you ever walked through an urban landscape and rather than looked at the buildings, looked at the spaces between them? Yeah. He said, because the spaces in buildings are beautiful. And as we were talking, that's exactly what I was starting to picture in my head. You know, the fact that most people will walk through an urban landscape, see a building, oh God, that's big. I better go a different way or that stopped my stop me in my tracks. Whereas those people that are truly creative problem solvers get to that point and go, okay, where's the space may not be big. First of all, they're really good at identifying the space, however small. And then they have the courage for whatever reason to actually head towards the space and through it. And I yeah. think for most people, what we've got to be better at is that, is spotting the spaces and having the courage to head through it, knowing that that's the only way we can continue the journey. The problem is too many of us, I think, are almost raised to just see the objects. I mean, and how many times have you or I or the people we know and love said things like, oh, I always wished I could have, but, oh, I always yeah. wanted to, but building building and I think the uniqueness is the perspective that some people have to go actually there's still a space and let's mm -hmm. let's just play with space and see what happens so what advice would you give to people who are you know they've they've got a dream about doing something but they're struggling to find a way forward with how they might get there or um you know there's something in their head stopping them from doing it what would you what would you say to those people you know they've got bills to pay they've got what what would you say i i think the thing first of all is not to see the dream as a fate accompli right it's either in or out it's either black or white it's got to be this or that um go back to the spaces between the buildings the space between the building is not the full um 
utopia. It's just the first step towards it, right? And then there's another one and another one and another one and another one. I think all too often the problem is too many of us are intimidated by the size of Everest and think, well, there's no way I'm going to get to the top. And actually the job isn't to get to the top. It's just to get to base camp. And then it's to take a breather and maybe to try and find your way to camp one or whatever it, it may be. And I think what I would say to people is just take a step back from the finish line and the grandiose vision for the big picture and say, okay, step one is I want to do this. My first step in the journey might be break it down, right? So I've got a salary and and I want to ultimately freelance or I want to ultimately do that. But right now I depend on my salary. So then it's about saying, well, how could I take one fifth of my salary out? a way we could do that could we cut our cloth to do that can i find a way to guarantee maybe a few extra hundred quid by doing something else just to buy me the time because to me you start on these journeys because it's let's be honest 99 percent of the time it's to do with cash it's to do with money and my god we're living in a really challenging time for people to consider this now and to me it's about saying okay well how can i how can I buy time? Because time is always the thing, right? And so how can I buy time? What could I do to buy myself an hour here or a couple of hours there or the headspace to, to think about that? And I think if you break it down into those chunks rather than be completely overawed by the size of the mountain, you start to find the spaces and you start to head up the path. And, and, so eventually you get to a point where you think, my goodness, I can't believe how far I've come. And then the momentum shifts slightly. But I think that the only tip I can give is break it down, dreaming big and just start looking at the first few steps. Yeah, I think that's good advice. I think um, it's hard work as well, isn't it? It doesn't just none of nothing that's happened to you has just happened. You've worked really hard to get where you are and continue to do so. Yeah, I I, I have, um, but also I've I've been lucky enough to surround myself either by accident or design with people who are incredible as part of that mechanism, and I that's really important for people to remember too. Even if the journey you're looking at going on feels solo or is a solo dream, um, or it's your ambition, to you know as we've talked already about having mentors and, and whether they're official or not, whether it's a, a loving partner who you trust to give it to you between the eyes or whether it's, you know, people that have the honesty to, to, to be critical friends, you know, to be um, constructive, um, co constructively difficult about what you're dealing with. I think it's really important not to feel you have to carry the journey on your own. I think yeah. it's really, really important to have that support network around you. Some of those people just to build you back up in the moments where you're feeling low and you've got nothing left to give, or you're just ready to chuck the whole thing in the air and give it up. Those people that actually um, can network and maybe just you have a coffee with who and, and just informally an idea evolves out of nothing. The danger too often is we ask ourselves to sink into our own kind of silo and particularly when we're feeling under pressure or stress we don't want to bother other people we feel weak by feeling that way um 
I think having that support network around you and building that network and never saying no to meeting people for coffee or just informally. Again, I think often we overanalyze, overplan, we overcensure who we think might be of value or might be of, of use. Um, you know, I, I think the point is be open, be open to every possibility, be open to every relationship, because some of them may never pay dividends, but you only need one little golden nugget in every sieve and something extraordinary can happen. Yeah, I love that. So a final question. I think I'm going to ask this to all my guests. So Richard is my uh, my first guest. Um, Richard, if you had a magic seed and could grow <laughs> anything you wanted. This is the kind of question that I used to have on my classroom wall. Isn't it? I remember. <laughs> <laughs> if you had a magic seed and could grow anything you wanted, what would it be? God. If I, I should have grow... given you this one in advance. Yeah, I? no. If I could grow anything I wanted. Um Oh my God. I think for me, it would be, it would be to grow a fruit that you crushed into a magic cushion that gave everybody the ability to see everybody else's view constructively. Um, you know, one of the things that I find so despairing about life now, more than perhaps ever, is the polarized nature of the world we live in and almost people expending so much energy on proving they're right and everybody else is wrong. Yeah. What I'd love is to create a potion or, you know, whatever, maybe a natural that gave people the ability to, to actually suspend their ego for a bit and just allow themselves to take what other people say constructively and openly. I know it sounds ideological and maybe a bit kind of loose, but, but I it's genuinely a magic <laughs> yeah, it is. And I, I absolutely believe that there is only one way this world progresses and becomes a better place for our kids. And that's if we understand the power of collaboration and the mutuality of support and understanding. Um, and I worry that we're in a point right now and we could go one of two ways. I mean, I, I'm optimistic because I think our young people see the world in a much more collaborative way than we do. But I I want something that gets people to open up, to collaborate with honesty and with openness and with love and respect, because that's where magic happens. Right? And if we want to build a sustainable magic, magical forest from one magical seed, that's how we do it. Yeah. So that was meant to be my final question, but I just would love to know what's next for Richard Gerber. Oh, my goodness. Well, this is your honestly, Holly, the first to hear this, apart from Lynn. I've been in tears this morning because I am writing my first children's book. And wow. it is a fictional. It is. I know. And it's a fictionalized um, story loosely based on Martha. If people oh. are watching this, we'll see I've been leaning. So, so she's a, a Romy rescue who's um, who was found next to her mother was shot in the streets of Romania and she was rescued. Anyway, it's a fictionalized story about loosely based on Martha and a story about acceptance and love and adversity. Um, and I've just written a scene where Martha's mother, Anka, is shot in the streets. And I was in floods, floods oh. of tears. Um, it ends happily for anyone that wants to know. It does it. 
happily. But, Spoiler. Um, yeah, there we go. It does it, I promise. Um, but yeah, so I'm writing a children's book amongst doing all the other stuff I do. I felt it was time. And, and you know, one of my roles now is a, as honorary president of the School Library Association. I thought it was probably a good time to write a children's book. So You know what? Um, I am so happy to hear that from you because... I've it's I remember you mentioning years ago that it was something that you'd like to do and it's absolutely something that you should be doing so I'm so happy <laughs> that you're doing that and that Martha is the star of the show as well <laughs> yeah she's she's gonna become she's gonna have her own Instagram account everything oh. she's gonna be she's gonna be well famous my little Martha but yeah it's so cool. um if anyone out there knows a really good illustrator let me know because I want somebody who can illustrate my book Oh, right. Well, I do. I'll talk to you after. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's been amazing, Richard. Thank you so much um, for coming on to Holly's World and uh, and having a chat with me. It's been brilliant and really good to catch up as well. Oh, Holly, honestly, it's been an absolute joy. And uh, I'm just sat here with a smile on my face thinking about the lives you can go on and change using the podcast and all the other things you do. So, Thank you so, so much. And listen, I've far low, so things with other guests can only get better. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, thanks, Richard. <laughs>